Well, we return again to our study in Philippians. So open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 2. And our text this morning is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. I'd like to read that text along with the, uh, the preceding context to open our time. Philippians chapter 2, we'll start in verse 5, reading through verse 13. Paul writes, "'Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus.'" who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We love the doctrine of justification. Following in the footsteps of Martin Luther and the Reformation, we hail the doctrine of justification as that great doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. It's precious to us and we hold it dear, dear to our hearts, because it captures the very essence of the gospel of God's grace to us, to sinners who know that we can do nothing to earn our acceptance with a holy God. We know that our only hope is to be reckoned righteous on the ground of the perfect alien righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to our account by faith alone, apart from works. And we love that doctrine. Because our goodness and our efforts and our achievements are debased and Christ is exalted to be all in all. And we also love the doctrine of glorification. It fills our hearts with joy and eagerness and great anticipation as we think about and long for that day when our struggle with sin will finally have reached its completion, when we'll find the, the rest and the reward upon which we have so steadfastly fixed our hope here on this earth for all these years. It brings great encouragement and sweetness to our souls to contemplate that day when we will finally see our dear Lord Jesus face to face, when we'll finally discover what it will mean to have unhindered fellowship and communion with the Savior whom we love more than anyone and anything. We look forward to that day when we will enter into the fullness of his joy and to the eternal pleasures that accompany being in his presence. But sometimes the doctrine of sanctification doesn't fill us with the same sense of wonder and appreciation that the doctrines of justification and glorification do. And that may be because we're quickly reminded of how slowly we are progressing in this process of sanctification. To think of the doctrine of sanctification simply reminds us right away of what we ought to be and what we are not yet. 
It also might be because there's a great deal of confusion about the doctrine of sanctification. Christians have long debated what the role of the believer is in progressive sanctification, whether we're to be actively engaged in pursuing holiness or whether we're to be more passive and waiting faithfully for God to work holiness in us. You have folks on the one hand who say things like, you just do everything you can and leave the rest to God. As if, you know, you're pretty okay on your own. You just need God to give you a little boost or something. And then these are the people who have bumper stickers on their car that says, God is my co-pilot. If God is your co-pilot, you are in the wrong seat, my friend. <laughs> or sometimes you'll hear, pray like a Calvinist, but work like an Arminian. You know, pray as if it all depended on God and work as if it all depended on you. And, I, you know, I think I get what that means, but it's never a good idea to pretend that something that's false is true just to achieve a certain result. In fact, I can't think of a better recipe for disaster in your pursuit of holiness than to adopt errant theology as the basis for your philosophy of the Christian life. So you have them on the one hand, but on the other hand, you have the quietists, the, the pacifists, not pacifists like no war, but pacifists, people who take a passive approach to sanctification that says, hey, your problem is that you're trying to live the Christian life. Like, wait a second, what? Yeah, yeah, I am. And he said, well, that's your problem. What you really need to do is to let Christ live through you. You just need to let go and let God. Stop striving and just relax. And so confusion abounds and in dozens of other ways. But if there's one doctrine that we can't afford to be confused about, it's the doctrine of sanctification. And that's because it's where we all live. All of us who are Christians live in between the time of our past justification and our future glorification, in the, the present pursuit of holiness without which no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12, 14. Well, in our study of the letter to the Philippians this morning, we arrive at a text that has much to teach us about this doctrine. It's a text that Martin Lloyd-Jones calls one of the most perfect summaries of the Christian life to be found anywhere one of the most pregnant statements which Paul ever made. And that is the command to work out our salvation with fear and trembling on the ground that God is at work within us to will and to work for his good pleasure. And this key text on the believer's pursuit of holiness doesn't appear here by accident. It comes, of course, on the heels of that magnificent hymn of praise which celebrates the gospel, the humiliation and then the consequent exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if there was ever a point to just stop and sit back and just bask in the glory of what God has accomplished in the gospel, it's right here. I mean, I read that text and I feel like Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let me build some tents so we can stay here for a while. Commentator Handley Mool captures this sentiment perfectly. He writes, We still have in our ears the celestial music, infinitely sweet and full, of the great paragraph of the Incarnation, the journey of the Lord of love from glory to glory by way of the awful cross. May we not now give ourselves a while wholly to reverie and feast upon the divine poetry at our leisure? Not so, he says. The immediate sequel is that we are to be holy. We are to act 
in the light and wonder of so vast an act of love, in the wealth and resource of so great a salvation. We are to set spiritually to work. See, just as Jesus didn't let Peter and James and John protract their time on the Mount of Transfiguration, so does Paul urge us down from this mountaintop of Philippians 2, 5 to 11 to set us upon an urgent project that needs our undivided attention, and that is our practical pursuit of holiness. James Boyce insightfully observes that the Bible never allows us to think that meditation has achieved its purpose for us unless it results in practical application. Truth leads to action, Boyce says, and there is no value to a mountaintop experience unless it helps us live in the valleys. The incarnation, humiliation, and exaltation of Christ are not merely theological concepts reserved only for the contemplation of introverts and theoreticians. No, Paul expects these glorious truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ to have a life-shaping, sanctifying impact on God's people. In other words, Paul expects us to live gospel-driven lives, like we've been saying all along. Here in Philippians chapter 2, we observe afresh that the gospel is not only what gets our sins forgiven and provides righteousness, as glorious as that is. Here we learn that the gospel also fundamentally drives our sanctification. And this morning we'll observe in these two brief, pregnant, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, power-packed verses, seven key truths about sanctification. Seven key truths that teach us about the nature of the Christian life and the pursuit of holiness so that we might be those who conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So let's start right in. That first key truth about sanctification is, number one, that sanctification is linked to a perfect example. It is linked to a perfect example. Look with me at the beginning of verse 12. Paul says, So then, my beloved... Just as you have always obeyed. And we'll stop there for now. Those two little words at the very beginning, so then, or your translation might have, therefore. That's Paul telling us that he's linking this new paragraph in Philippians to, to what has come just previously before it. We've already mentioned just now that this exhortation to, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling is very connected to that similar exhortation in Philippians 1.27 to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, to live gospel-driven lives. And so it's right to see verses 12 through 18 in chapter 2 as a, a continuation of what it means to live a gospel-driven life. But that's not all that this verse is connected to. It's also directly connected to the hymn of Christ's exemplary humility and exaltation in verses 5 to 11. You say, how do you know that? Well, there's a key word that showed up in Paul's description of Christ's humiliation that gets repeated here in verse 12. Can you see what that is? Look at chapter 2, verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so now Paul comes to verse 12 and says, so then, just as you have always obeyed, go on working out your salvation with fear and trembling. You see, he's calling our attention to Christ's perfect example of obedience to the Father. 
the glorious gospel which he just finished celebrating. And he's saying, in view of our Lord's perfect example of obedience and humility in the most extreme circumstances, and in view of the great reward of exaltation that awaits those faithful and obedient servants of God, so you also follow his example and press on in obedience and humility no matter how great the difficulty. And so, Our sanctification is linked to a perfect example in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But, you know, he's not just our example in the pursuit of humility, though that is Paul's point here. He's our example in our pursuit of holiness in its entirety. As the great master who nevertheless washed the feet of his disciples, he is the the great example of service and self-sacrificial ministry. As the one who is rich, enjoying the lavish praise of the saints and the angels in heaven. Yet for our sakes he became poor, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, so that we through his poverty might become rich. And in so doing, he becomes our example for generosity and sacrificial giving. And as the one who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he didn't revile in return, and while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. He left us an example to follow in his footsteps, 1 Peter 2 says, and he becomes our example of patience and of suffering for righteousness' sake. And we could go on. In every aspect of our pursuit of holiness, Jesus Christ is our model and our example. In fact, in Romans 8, 29, Paul defines the process of sanctification as becoming conformed to the image of God's Son. In 2 Corinthians 3, 18, he defines it as being transformed into the image of Christ's glory. And the Apostle John tells us in 1 John 2, 6, that the one who says he abides in Christ ought himself also to walk in the same manner as he walked. And what a blessing it is that in this lifelong pursuit of holiness, that we're not left in the dark to try to figure out the Christian life on our own. God has given us a perfect picture of what we're aiming at in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself the very embodiment of holiness. If we would live a life worthy of the gospel, if we would seek to be gospel-driven in all that we do, We need only to fix our eyes on the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very consummation of faithfulness and holiness and purity and follow in his footsteps. What a gracious gift from our Father that sanctification is linked to a perfect example. The second key truth about sanctification that we learn in this text is that it is grounded in a present relationship. It's grounded in a present relationship. Look again at verse 12. Paul writes, So then, my beloved, my beloved, those whom I love. That phrase taps into the deep affection and unique bond that Paul shared with the Philippians. And we've seen that elsewhere in this epistle. Chapter 1, verse 7, Paul writes, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
And flip over to chapter 4, verse 1. There he calls them, My beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown. And then at the end of the verse, even though he's already said it at the beginning of the verse, he calls them my beloved again. The unique way in which the Philippians administered to the Apostle Paul has knit their hearts together. And so he celebrates their participation or, or partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, chapter 1, verse 5. The warmth of affection and the, the deep union between Paul and these precious friends is just unmistakable. And the key thought there for us is that Paul taps into that context of relationship as he begins to exhort them to obedience. Do you see the beauty and the tenderness and the wisdom in that? He's about to give them a serious command, a rather startling command, as we'll see. But before he does that, he reassures them of his love for them. This is not the indifferent directive of a cold and distant leader lording his power over those, whom, those who follow him. This is the heartfelt plea of a spiritual father to his spiritual children to make his joy complete by putting their hand to the plow of Christian holiness. And the glorious truth for you and me is Paul is only following in the footsteps of his heavenly father, who is our heavenly father as well. The Philippians are not only beloved by Paul. As believers united to Christ by faith, they are also beloved by God. And you and I, as believers in the same gospel, united to the same Christ by faith, are also loved by God. And as a result, the commands that are enjoined upon us for us to follow in the Christian life are also grounded in a present relationship. That's why in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul writes to the believers, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Because you're already chosen, because you're already loved, work out your salvation. Do you see how that works? Our sanctification, our pursuit of holiness must be grounded in a present relationship through Jesus, through faith in Jesus Christ. If you set about your pursuit of holiness in order to get into a relationship with God or in order to earn God's love or favor, you're going to spin the wheels of self-effort and you're already on the fast track to moralism. Now, we don't try to gain God's favor by our spiritual performance. That doesn't work for justification and it doesn't work for sanctification. Now, we fight sin and we pursue holiness because we have already been forgiven, because we have already been united to Christ by faith, because we already are beloved. The old hymn is absolutely right. He breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the prisoner free. The only kind of sin that's broken in the lives of people is canceled sin. Sin that has already been punished in Christ and forgiven by faith. And we need to battle against sin. We need to do battle against our sin in the strength and in the freedom of that gospel-driven foundation that I can be victorious over sin because Christ has already conquered sin in me by virtue of his work on the cross.
Well, we've seen that sanctification is linked to a perfect example, grounded in a present relationship. The third key truth about sanctification that this text teaches us is that it is marked by an upright consistency. It is marked by an upright consistency. Look again at verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that's not the first time we've heard something like that either. Back in chapter 1, verse 27, he tells the Philippians to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm. So we've seen this note of, of consistency before. What's Paul after here? He's repeating this now. Well, in light of what we just talked about, about that, that present relationship of deep affection, that unique bond between Paul and the Philippians, while there's so much that's so good about that kind of relationship, Paul knew that there was a potential danger as well. As much as they loved him and as much as they admired him and as much as they cared for him, there was always the temptation to rely too much on him for their spiritual growth, to think that his presence with them was essential for their progress in grace. And so when he says, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, he's saying, your gospel-driven pursuit of holiness cannot depend on my being with you. A life worthy of the gospel isn't lived in the fear of Paul. It's lived in the fear of God. And what I want for you my dear Philippians, is for you to work out your own salvation, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, whether I come and see it for myself or whether I can only hear of it by report. Your gospel-driven lives must be marked by an upright consistency. See, he doesn't want them to be dependent on his presence for their spiritual welfare. He wants their obedience to be dependent on the presence of God who never leaves them, who never forsakes them, and who is not only with them, but who is in fact continually working in them both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And in the same way, our lives must be marked by an upright consistency. When we studied chapter 1, verse 27 together, I, I, I asked you whether or not you would speak or act or use your time differently than you do if Pastor John was with you, or if Phil was with you, or if another of your elders was with you. And I ask you that again this morning. Does your battle against sin and your pursuit of holiness slacken when you're not in the presence or the, under the influence of someone other than Christ himself? If so, your life is marked by inconsistency. In his Commentary on this passage, Pastor John writes, and this is so fitting for how much we love our pastor. This is so fitting for him to say this. Believers must never be primarily dependent on their pastor, teacher, Christian fellowship, or anyone else for their spiritual strength and growth. Their supreme example is the Lord Jesus Christ, and their true power comes from the Holy Spirit. Believers, gratefully, are never without Christ's example and never without the Spirit's power. We need to hear that. 
We need to love him. We need to esteem our leaders highly in love. We can never be dependent on them as if they were the lifeline and the source, the, the vine from which we receive our life as the branches. Doesn't mean that pastors and teachers and fellowship with other believers are worthless. No, far from it, not at all. It just means that true sanctification is not a show that we put on in front of respected leaders or other friends. We have an audience of one who is always with us and who we always can depend on. A fourth key truth about sanctification that we see in this passage comes at the end of verse 12. Number four, sanctification is pursued by a diligent effort. Sanctification is pursued by a diligent effort. And here we come to the very heart of the passage, the main verb of the sentence. Look with me again at verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. One writer commenting on this phrase says, it is impossible to tone down the force with which Paul here points to our conscious activity in sanctification. Paul was not a quietist. He didn't advocate a passive approach to sanctification where we seek to simply yield and surrender, to let go and let God. That approach is often ascribed to the Keswick movement of the 19th century, so-called because of the conventions on spirituality that took place in Keswick in England. Andrew Murray has been described as the foremost devotional author of the Keswick movement, in his classic book, Abide in Christ, which is a very good book in a lot of respects, but does err. He gives us a good representation of the quietistic model of sanctification. He writes, what the believer can do of himself is altogether sinful. He must therefore cease entirely from his own doing and wait for the working of God in him just as in proportion as he yields himself as a truly passive instrument in the hand of God, will he be wielded of God as the active instrument of his almighty power. You see, that sounds really plausible. That sounds good. It, I mean, it sounds attractive. I mean, who wouldn't want to just sit back and wait and relax and have holiness just happen to you? What Murray and the others of the quietest movement were latching onto was that great truth that comes in the very next verse of our text that God is the one who is working in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But it's often been said that truth is like a razor's edge and that error is like a wide and vast plateau. And in seeking to emphasize the sovereignty of God and the believer's utter dependence on him, which is a good thing, the quietists have fallen off that razor's edge because they fail to give the same adequate emphasis, the equal emphasis that Paul makes in this very text and throughout the rest of Scripture that sanctification is to be pursued by a diligent effort, that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Listen to the way that Scripture speaks about our sanctification. One, it's a pursuit Hebrews 12, 14 is sort of a ground zero text for this. It says, pursue peace with all men and, 
In other words, and pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. There is a sanctification, a practical holiness without which no one will see God. And we are commanded to pursue it. Number two, sanctification is a fight. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, Paul exhorts Timothy to fight the good fight of faith and to take hold of eternal life to which you were called. Three, sanctification is a pressing on. Just a little bit later in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And again in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That pressing on is the Greek word dioko, which means to move rapidly and decisively toward an object. It was used of hunters in active pursuit of their prey. Number four, the Christian's progressive sanctification is also compared to the Olympic Games. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, Paul writes, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Well, run in such a way that you may win. He says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And number five, very similarly, in Hebrews 12.1, sanctification is described as a race, again, explicitly. The author stirs us up and he says, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so we can make no mistake. We are not to be passive in our sanctification. The Christian life is marked by a continuous sustained, strenuous effort. We're to make diligent use of every God-ordained means that the Scripture gives us to grow in grace. What are those means? Well, we, we need to seek the renewing of our minds, right, as we expose our minds to, to the, the Scriptures, the Word of God, constantly reading and meditating on the, the sanctifying word of God. Jesus says it in, in John 17, 17, the, in his prayer to the Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So we're sanctified by the word. That's a means we can make use of. We're to seek God's face in prayer and in communion with him, relishing that communion, asking him to accomplish the work of sanctification in us. We're to expose ourselves to the preaching of the word as we participate in the corporate worship of the Lord in his gathered assembly on Sunday morning in the fellowship of his church, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, Hebrews 10, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, stimulating one another, he says, to love and good deeds. How do you do love and good deeds? Well, partly you're stimulated to that by your brothers and sisters in the church. And in all these means and more means that we could enumerate, 
We appropriate all of them always by gazing with the eyes of our heart upon the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ that's revealed in Scripture, that's revealed in prayer, and that's revealed in fellowship with the saints. Because as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it is as we behold with unveiled face the glory of the Lord that we are transformed into that same image from glory to glory. So we need to make use of those means. We need to pursue our sanctification with a diligent effort. There's a fifth key truth about sanctification that this text teaches us, and we've mentioned it a couple of times already. So we've just learned that sanctification is pursued by a diligent effort. But we must be careful to note that that diligent effort is, number five, energized by divine power. Sanctification is energized by divine power. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Literally, the one who is continually working in you is God. This notion of continual work, it translates a, a present participle from the verb energeo, from which we get the word energy in English. The power that energizes all of our labors in the pursuit of holiness is God's divine power. Calvin calls God's powerful, energizing grace the true engine for battling sin. And the word God in the text, though it would normally occur at the last part of the sentence in the Greek, is thrown all the way up to the very front for a startling amount of emphasis. Paul has no desire to be misunderstood here. It is incumbent upon you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But don't forget for a moment, dear Philippians, that in all your efforts of working out, it is God who is in you, energizing all of your efforts. He began that good work of salvation in you, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, right? And Paul is absolutely confident that he who began that good work in you will bring it forth to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And here we learn that God is at work in you, not only at the beginning and not only at the end, but at every step of the way on the in-between. And Scripture speaks just as emphatically about this truth of God's sovereign activity in sanctification as it does about the believer's effort. As Paul brings his first letter to the Thessalonians to a close, after he said all he's going to say, he prays on their behalf in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Here he, he ascribes the entire work of sanctification to God. In 1 Corinthians 12.6, as he begins his discourse on the spiritual gifts, he starts off by making the point that there are many gifts and there's a variety of effects with those, which those gifts will have. But he says, at the heart of all the power of the spiritual gifts is, 1 Corinthians 12, 6, the same God who works all things in all persons. Whatever spiritual gifts you employ, God is working all things in all believers. In that magnificent prayer at the end of Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prays that the Lord would grant the Ephesians, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. That's God working in you. 
And in the benediction of the letter to the Hebrews, this is a wonderful benediction, the author writes, Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. See, in all your efforts to put off sin and to put on righteousness, the almighty God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, is working in you with the same energizing power by which he raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. No wonder Paul commands us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I want you to think about the sins that you committed yesterday. I want you to think about the sins that you committed this morning and grasp the fact that in those moments, the ineffably holy God of the universe was so intimately involved with you that the very moment that you began to turn from those sins in repentance, it can properly be said that that holy God was in you, both willing and working that repentance for his good pleasure. Which of you won't tremble at that thought that the holy God is in me, thou in me dwelling, and I with thee one? Think about your sin and that statement. This Christianity business, this is this following Christ business, this isn't uh, some weekend hobby. This isn't some minor shift in your social calendar. It's not learning when to parrot out a few catchphrases and being sorry when you're doing bad things. This following Jesus is dead serious. God is in you. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Do you not know that it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure? Shall we then be carefree and flippant in our attitude towards sin and in our pursuit of personal holiness? May it never be. God is at work in you, dear friends. And so far from making you kick back and relax, that reality should make you blood earnest about putting to death the deeds of the body and putting on righteousness with all of your might, with everything that you can muster. Now, some of you are saying, now wait just a minute here. First, you told me that I need to be working out my own salvation. And now you're telling me that God is the one who's working in me. Well, which is it? Do I work or does he work? And the answer is both. God's working in us, mark this, God's working in us in no way cancels or mitigates our need to work out our salvation. In fact, his work is the ground of our work. That's what that little word for is doing in verse 13. It's showing you the ground of that command. Work out because God is working in you. We labor, we strive, we work out precisely because he is working in us. And without his working, our working would be impossible. We see this so clearly in 2 Peter chapter 1. Turn there with me. 2 Peter chapter 1 Starting in verse 3, Peter tells the believers 
that God's, verse 3, divine power, here it is again, divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. God's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything we need has been provided for us graciously by the working of God's own power. And then, verse 4, he tells us that we have escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And so you might think, hey, perfect. God gives me everything I need for godliness, for sanctification. I've escaped the world's corruption. I'm, I'm just going to sit back and relax and yield and surrender and wait for the magic zap. But then you run into the two by four that is verse five. Peter says, now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and so on. Grasp the way that the scripture reasons there because we don't reason like that naturally. You've been given everything you need. You've escaped the corruption from the world. And for this very reason, make every effort in your sanctification. Almighty God is working within you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And for this very reason, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Moses didn't quite get this in Exodus 14. Turn there briefly. Exodus chapter 14. As the Jews were being pursued by Pharaoh's army in the wilderness, they approached the Red Sea and they realized, hey, they were getting hemmed in on both sides. On one side, there was the army. On the other side, there was the sea that they couldn't cross. And so believing that they were trapped... They started to blame Moses and they said, is, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? And in verse 13, Moses says to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you'll never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Sounds great, doesn't it? Trusting in the sovereignty of God. Only problem is, God's response in verse 15 was, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. As for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the sons of Israel shall go with, through the midst of the sea on dry land. What is God saying? Is he saying, hey, listen, stop bugging me. I've done all that I can do. You're on your own from here. Is he saying, come on, Moses, work it up. Do your best to make the Egyptians disappear. No. The Red Sea could only be divided by God's power. What he's saying is, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it by means. I'm going to do it through you. I'm going to do it, but I'm not going to do it so that you do nothing. You see, Moses, he didn't work the miracle of parting the Red Sea. God worked the miracle. Moses acted the miracle. And in the miracle of sanctification, God works in us so that by his divine power, we obey. We act the miracle of becoming increasingly holy, which is God's work. Jonathan Edwards is just super helpful here. Edwards wrote, We are not merely passive in sanctification. 
nor yet does God do some and we do the rest, but God does all and we do all. God produces all and we act all. For that is what he produces, our own acts. God is the only proper author and fountain and we are the only proper actors. We are in different respects, wholly passive and wholly active. I mean, that's walking the razor's edge. And that reality is everywhere in Scripture. Listen to the way the New Testament speaks about this. Galatians 2.20 is going to make sense of some of these verses that you've heard for a good while. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Which is it? 1 Corinthians 15.10, I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Colossians 1.29, so key. This is just says it so plainly. For this purpose I also labor, striving. How, Paul? According to his power, which mightily works within me. Romans 8.13, Paul says, If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So I put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. And one more, 1 Peter 4.11, whoever serves is to serve as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. I serve by the strength that God supplies. So in all these passages, I am living, I am laboring, I am striving, I am serving. But in every case, my willing and working is energized by God's willing and working. So don't pit these two truths against one another and fall off that razor's edge onto the vast plateaus of error. We've got to recognize that though sanctification is pursued by our diligent effort, it is energized by divine power. Well, that takes us quickly then to key truth number six. Sanctification is measured in the affections and in the actions. Sanctification is measured in the affections and the actions. Verse 13 again, God is continually working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So this is teaching us that God's powerful work in our sanctification, which we just heard about, involves his working in us both internally and externally. One commentator captures the thought nicely when he says, God produces in believers both the desire to live righteously and the effective energy to do so. And the main lesson that I want us to get from this point is just that holiness is not merely a matter of performing external duties. God's work of sanctifying us begins internally. The text says he is working in us. The great Princeton theologian Charles Hodge wrote that sanctification does not consist exclusively in a series of new kinds of acts, though it does. It is the making the tree good in order that the fruit may be good. It's making the tree good so that the fruit may be good. This means that the holy person doesn't merely do what God commands, though he certainly does that. It means that the holy person loves what God loves and then acts in keeping with that renewed heart, with those renewed affections. As God works in us, 
both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He inclines our hearts to treasure the glory of Christ. And as we behold him with the eyes of our heart, our minds and our affections are renewed, Romans 12, 2 says. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That happens when our heart is inclined to glory and that glory transforms our affections and our mind is changed so that we love him more and love sin less. We are transformed from the inside out. Now, why is that important? Why do I take time in a sermon with seven points to talk about that? It's because it properly informs our pursuit of holiness. We have to know what holiness is most fundamentally before we can properly go seeking it out. Before we can begin making every effort, as Peter says, to add to our faith, virtue, knowledge, and self-control, we need to recognize that we're not talking about behavior modification. Even hypocrites can train themselves to perform external duties. No, we're talking about a heart transformation. The change we're seeking is both internal and external. We want to have sanctified affections as well as sanctified actions because God commands us not only to behave righteously, but he commands us to be holy. And the amazing thing is that he works in us even at that level of internal affections and motivations. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this, this portion of the text. He says, can anything be more radical than that? It means that every good desire and every Christian thought and aspiration which I have is something which is, has been produced in me by God. God controls my willing. It is God who energizes my very desires and hopes and aspirations and thoughts. He stimulates all. You might be thinking, hey, that was pretty good that I did that. You know, I'll give, give God credit, but you know, I came up with that idea. No way. He says he works in you both to will and to work. Well, that brings us to the final key truth about sanctification. Number seven, it is governed by God's perfect will. It is governed by God's perfect will. And here we come to the end of verse 13 when we learn that all of God's working in us, both to will and to work, is for his good pleasure. This is his great end. God takes such great pains in striving with his creatures through this process of progressive sanctification because it pleases him to do so, because he delights in holiness. His goal has always been, Titus 2.14, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. His stated purpose from, the, from before the foundation of the world was to predestine those whom he foreknew to become conformed to the image of his son. This is what Romans 8.29 says. He predestined them to become conformed to the image of his son. This started in eternity past. God has always been in the business of forming and shaping his people into looking exactly like his son. Why? Because in his beloved son, he is well pleased. He's worthy to receive a people, a people who he is going to call by his own name, who were conformed to the perfect image of his own holiness, which is perfectly reflected in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the exact representation and imprint of his nature. The pleasure of God in his own holiness, is what drives him to sanctify his people. We get great benefit from it, but if you think that you're the chief end of God's affections, you've got it wrong. He loves himself 
And God is the one being in the universe for whom self-love is not megalomaniacal, where it's not egotistical, but that it's love for others. Because the greatest thing that we can have to be displayed to our eyes is the magnification and glory of God. And so God says, I delight in my own glory and magnification. And that's our greatest benefit. Makes sense then, doesn't it, that Paul could write in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So many professing Christians are killing themselves trying to discover what's the will of God for my life? What's the will of God for my life? Here's the will of God for your life, your sanctification, your ever-increasing holiness and Christ-likeness. And I think that we can find a great source of strength in motivation, in our battle against sin, if we constantly remind ourselves that that battle is governed by God's perfect will, that at any given moment in which I am fully engaged with all my faculties in the mortification of sin, fully engaged in working out my own salvation with fear and trembling, according to the power of God working mightily within me, I am right in the center of God's will, right where he wants me to be, pursuing him. And that leaves just one question. Are you in the center of his will, which is your sanctification? Is the almighty God of the universe at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, both directing your desires and your actions in conformity with his will? Do you have any sense of the divine strength that energizes you to gladly and joyfully and reverently Work out your own salvation. Are you making progress in holiness? And if you're outside of Christ here this morning, your answer to those questions must be no. And rather than pleasing God, all of your efforts to do good works and perform righteous deeds are an offense to Him. Isaiah 64, 6 says that apart from Christ, all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Sure, our good deeds might look good when compared to other people's good deeds or on a horizontal human level, but God's standard of righteousness is his own perfect character. He is perfectly holy. And so any hope of attaining righteousness by your own works is like trying to purchase a brand new car with a dirty rag. And so if you're outside of Christ this morning, God's word to you is not work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You've got no salvation to speak about, no salvation to work out. No, God's word to you this morning is to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Put your trust in somebody else's works, in somebody else's righteousness, the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, as we have heard in this text, obeyed God perfectly in all aspects of life, who humbled himself to be obedient even to death on a cross, to bear the curse of his father's wrath, which was due to you, that the penalty for your sin should be paid, and who rose again on the third day to triumph over death. Dear friend, he did that precisely because you couldn't be holy enough. Receive that gift of righteousness in Christ this morning. And for my brothers and sisters, as you faithfully battle against sin and pursue holiness in your own lives, remember these seven key truths about sanctification. Always keep an eye to the perfect example that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that you fight not as one seeking to earn God's favor, but as one who is already beloved for the sake of Christ. 
Remember to pursue holiness consistently no matter who's watching because the Lord is always watching and He is our one and true proper audience. Be sure to arouse all your faculties and, and apply all diligence to supply to your faith virtue, to shun the snare of passivism and quietism. And yet make certain that all that striving is in conscious dependence upon His power, the one who mightily works within you and energizes all your efforts in the pursuit of holiness. And don't forget that holiness is first a matter of the heart, which then leads to the hands, and that God is working both in you. And rejoice in the God who takes pleasure in purifying His people in holiness, which is our greatest benefit and joy. Pray with me. Father, we're reminded, even as we close, that the context of this passage has in mind humility and unity in the body. So I pray that the first area of our, of our sanctification, working out our salvation that comes in our minds as we seek later on today to put this, pra this passage into practice would be that we would aim at, at the kind of gospel-driven unity that is produced by the kind of gospel-driven humility that we have modeled for us in our perfect example, the Lord Jesus Christ. And even as we look forward in the text to what it means to, to shine as stars in the darkness in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, to do nothing with grumbling or disputing, but to be content in all things because we're always getting better than we deserve. Lord, we, we ask that you would work in us to willing to work for your good pleasure, that you would empower and strengthen all our efforts to work out our salvation and be honored by those efforts because they're driven by the, the desire to see you clearly, to, to know you more intimately and to proclaim your glory to the world and those who are watching. May we never be hypocrites and may we never be lazy in this pursuit of holiness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.